Hello, funky listeners, and welcome to another episode of Funk Radio. This is your host, Kyle. And this is your host, Peter. And you are, can you guess it, listeners? The listeners. <laughs> so, Kyle, for once, this is, well, yes and no. I was going to say, for once, this isn't directly tied to a previous episode that we did. And that's 99% true. But uh, the 1% of that statement that is false is basically I've been looking or I recently looked for examples of um, singers that disappeared mm-hmm. uh, mysteriously. And um, as we mentioned recently, right, I guess as we broadcasted recently, um, we did that episode about Jim Sullivan. And in that same time period of research, I also found out that the famous musician uh, Glenn Miller from the 1940s also disappeared mysteriously, which I never knew. Yeah. Um, so I uh, I did some research on this, and uh, it's pretty interesting, um, especially when you get into, like, the, the, um, the theories about what happened to him and, like, where those theories came from, basically. It, it's pretty interesting. So mm-hmm. I, I think this will be a good one. Yeah, so. it's... Um I don't know if we've really covered, I guess, what you would call, like, big band uh, or jazz or, like, I don't know what you call it, kind of jazz uh, music too much on um, this podcast, but, I mean, I... I I mean, as a genre, it's not really something that we cross paths with very often. Yeah, very true. Swing, that's the the thing I was thinking of. Yeah, yeah. Um, But... Yeah, I have a couple of Glenn Miller albums. Um, I don't know why oh, nice. I'm a fan of like big band and swing music. Remember in like the 90s when like swing music came back for like a couple of years? Oh, was that uh, New Jack Swing or whatever they called yeah. that? Yeah. Anyways, but yeah, um, Glenn Miller is obviously an OG swing band guy. Right. And yeah, I had no idea he disappeared. So when he told me that, I was just like, oh, cool. Yeah, it was kind of weird to stumble upon that because, like, so I, in in, in a matter of speaking, I grew up on his music at least a little bit, mm-hmm. um, you know, because my um, my mom has been a, lo- a longtime fan of his work, and he even not not only only Glenn Miller, but just like you know that music of that era. Mm-hmm. So I, I I've always had some level of appreciation for that music. I haven't like gone out of my way to listen to it in a number of a number of years, but um, I have been known to do that now and then. Um, so, uh, we're going to get a little bit into, um, Glenn Miller's career a little bit. Um, because he's such a prominent figure in music, like, I feel like if we really wanted to, you could probably do a series of episodes on him, but like, I didn't, I, for, for sake of focusing on this particular story, I didn't go too in depth with like the stuff, the other stuff in his career. Mm -hmm. Um, so we're, uh, so Super fans of Glenn Miller may be like, hey, you glossed over all this stuff. It's like, well, we, we have a timetable to keep listeners. So. <laughs> we have lives, you know. <laughs> you listeners just force us to do funk radio. <laughs> <laughs> We're slaves to the listeners. So uh, I, I guess we'll get started then. And so so for those who don't know, I mean, like we already kind of alluded to it, but um, he was, I mean, really, he, I feel like he's pretty much synonymous with that whole era of, like you said, uh, big band swing jazz music of the 1940s. Mm-hmm. He he certainly wasn't the first one to produce music in that genre, but he was certainly one of the he he became one of the more prominent ones, and in a way, he also developed his own style that was unique. Mm-hmm. 
as well. So he's considered um, one of, I, I believe, one of like the most prominent musicians of the 20th century. Um, oh, wow. So pretty influential all around. Um, so it, he was he was a trombonist um, at heart. And he was also known as a band leader over his many years. I mean, I'm, I assume that many people listening to this probably recognize the name, but even if you don't, you might recognize some of the music when we play a couple of clips. Mm-hmm. During the late 1920s into the early 30s, uh, Glenn Miller worked as a freelance trombonist in several bands. Um, he played with dozens of well-known musicians, including the Dorsey Brothers, Benny Goodman, Artie Shaw, Bing Crosby, and many more. And um, something I notice kind of reading up on on his history in these earlier years of his career was that um he you know was always like the trombone guy or he was you know a supporting person in these bands but he Mm -hmm. was really trying to like make a name for himself which was proving to be pretty difficult because a lot of these groups were you know making good music but like nobody was really innovating necessarily or doing something different and so he felt that he wanted to figure something out that would basically differentiate him. And so that, that kind of happened, I would say in, in the mid to late, uh, 1930s, um, in 1938, he formed a new band called, uh, Glenn Miller and his orchestra. And, um, within their own, uh, unique sound and combination of instruments, basically they kind of developed this new style or offshoot of, of jazz music that was more in the kind of this upbeat swing sort of style. Um, and mm-hmm. so they, they rose to fame, uh, like I said, in the late 30s. Um, in 1939, they recorded some of their most famous hits, uh, including Moonlight Serenade and In the Mood. What's pretty incredible to me is that between... So in the span of about six years, between 1938 and 1944, um, they released 266 singles, Jesus. 16 of which were number one hits, and 69 of which were top 10 hits. <laughs> wow. that's like 40 songs a year or something like that yeah in in that time frame which is incredible especially considering how many because like i mentioned two different songs but they're if you wanted to like name ones that they're known for i mean it's probably like 10 that yeah most people would commonly refer to so obviously Mm -hmm. i I didn't want to play all all clips of all of those um but uh, i kind of picked the two that were i probably their most well-known I, I, we might as well just play these back to back. Um, so, in, in, and interestingly, they're both from the same year, 1939. Um, so, first, we're going to play a clip of In the Mood, and then followed right after that by a clip of Moonlight Serenade. If you don't know them by name, you'll almost certainly know them by sound. I always find it interesting that like there was an era in music when some of the most popular songs in the country were instrumental songs yeah uh, songs without lyrics but yeah this music is literally timeless 
their work is probably among some of the more recognizable music just ever, you know, mm-hmm. um, pretty incredible. And like, I, I guess just reiterating too, like the, the sheer volume of songs they released during that time. Yeah. I mean, that's crazy. I mean, that's like almost one new song a week <laughs> for six years. I feel like a lot of instrumental performers around that time, you know, Glenn Miller, Benny Goodman, yeah. a lot of the jazz performers around in the thirties and forties were kind of like that too. They were just constantly on and constantly working and constantly writing new material mm-hmm. because a lot of it was kind of, what's the word, self-actuated. It wasn't like they were under some big record label and they're like, you have to make this album and it right. has to, you know, a lot of it was just like, we're, we're just going to keep making music because we like to. And they're, they're yeah. just constantly writing music. I feel like that kind of self-actualization back then probably led to a lot more music and a lot more just kind of musical experimentation yeah, yeah. than some of, a lot of the popular music nowadays where it's all very lab-created and orchestrated, no pun intended. Mm-hmm. Interesting side note, I guess, with, with this discussion before we keep going, is um, uh, he. a lot of people knew him for basically being extremely like organized and on point in terms of like how the music was composed and performed mm-hmm. as opposed to a lot of jazz musicians who were a lot more about like improvisation yeah, and yeah. kind of doing whatever felt good in the moment. Whereas he was very, I'm defining it this way and we're going to do it exactly this way every time. And mm-hmm. it, I guess it's just interesting because, uh, you know, you could still consider it jazz music, but it's just kind of a different form of it that's created in a very different way. Yeah. And I, I, I read that, like, if for anyone who might have something negative to say about his work is that it was almost too structured um, as opposed to other forms yeah, of jazz at the time. It's hard to even quantify as jazz. It's because you're right. Jazz is much more loose and kind of free form. Yeah. Whereas this music, it's not really big band to that full kind of boisterous extent or you know, tons of horns, tons of cymbals, lots of loud, loud stuff. Yeah. But it's really not as smooth and sort of relaxed as as jazz either. Yeah. It's like in the, that in between space, like it, you know, and it's because it's so iconic. You know, it just sounds like the kind of music that would underpin a movie from the forties to me. Like right. You know. Yeah. So. So yeah, it, I find it, I find it kind of interesting sometimes to look critically at something that we don't really give a second thought to. Um, yeah yeah so just an interesting thought there so like i said um they they were pretty big between 1938 and 1944 now stepping back a couple years uh in 1942 uh glenn miller joins um the war effort because obviously world war ii was going on um Mm -hmm. at the age of 38 he was too old to be drafted but he was really persistent (laughs) about wanting to join so he persuaded the U.S. Army to accept him so that he could lead an army band. Um, so he was soon transferred to the Army Air Forces, uh, where he formed a 50-piece orchestra. So over the next couple of years, um, Miller and his band uh, gave performances to basically boost morale among the troops. He and the band uh, went to England in the summer of 1944 and gave 800 performances. They also recorded, interestingly, they recorded a series of records at Abbey Road Studios. And these were apparently propaganda broadcasts for the Office of War Information, including many songs sung in German. Oh, that's funny. So it, basically, his his he was very a very patriotic person, and he was really on board with the whole uh, propaganda 
trained to the to the extent where they were even saying and singing things in german to basically Mm. uh convince people hey convince the soldiers yeah 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 so it's a it's pretty interesting um general jimmy doolittle once said quote next to a letter from home that organization was the greatest morale builder in the european theater of operations you know like we look back on that music with uh you know admiration saying like wow that was Good stuff, but even at the time, you know, obviously it was very popular and it helped, you know, keep the morale high, I guess, among the troops. Yeah, true, true. So 1944 was um, an important year, I guess, in in the life of Glenn Miller. Um, On December 15th specifically, he boarded a small plane with two U.S. military officers, Lieutenant Colonel Norman Bessel and Pilot John Morgan. Um, So again, he was in England at the time. Mm-hmm. So the, the plane they were they got into was a single engine UC sixty four Norseman. Um, basically, imagine a tiny bush plane that can hold like three or four people. Yeah, I'm I'm looking at a picture of it. It doesn't even look like the kind of planes that they used as like fighter planes in the war. It it almost looks like a prop, like a those old prop planes from World War One. Yeah. So the the important thing is that it was a tiny ass plane and. Um, and really, you know, it didn't need to be anything more substantial than that, because um, basically what was happening is that they were flying to Paris because Glenn Miller was making arrangements to move his band there. Oh, since the, since in 44, the U.S. and England were kind of trying to liberate Paris and France in general. Right, right. Yeah, so they uh, so they departed from RAF Twinwood Farm in Clapham, U.K., you know, and embarked on their journey across the English Channel. But they never arrived in Paris, and mm. no traces of the plane were ever found. I swear that musicians getting on planes is like a curse. No kidding. <laughs> I think that episode we did a long time ago about musicians who died. Yeah, it was like three of them were planes. Otis Red- Otis Redding, the La Bamba guy. That one band did, right? Actually, probably, I think multiple bands did. Yeah. Um, yeah, so for some reason... Musicians and planes don't seem to mix very well. Yeah. So, like I said, that happened on December 15th of 1944. Um, Nine days later, on December 24th, his disappearance was finally made public. They kind of had to. Well, I mean, for one, he was a celebrity, basically. Um, But for two, I, I, again, I didn't write this down, but I I think he had a, he was going to be doing like a Christmas Day performance Mm -hmm. um, with his band. But, like, obviously, he was nowhere to be found, so they kind of had to, like, address that. Uh, But since this whole thing was a military matter, you know, at the end of the day, um, Mm -hmm. details of the investigation were never made public. And so this famous musician in Europe at the time, during World War II, suddenly disappears in a plane, and no details are made public. (laughs) You know, that's a pretty good breeding ground for a lot of theories and speculation. Yeah, definitely. So... The reason for his disappearance has more or less remained a complete mystery for about 70 years. Like we said, you know, the the speculation was pretty, uh, pretty wild with this one. So Um, the the next section of this episode now is going to be us getting into four different theories about what happened and just discussing the likelihood or or the reasons that these came up. Mm -hmm. The, The first theory, which was, I think, more or less one of the earliest theories that came about after he disappeared 
mm-hmm. was that uh, President Dwight D. Eisenhower sent Glenn Miller on a secret mission to negotiate a peace deal with Nazi Germany. Uh, the plan went south and Miller was assassinated by Nazis. Wait, just to confirm something. Yeah. Dwight D. Eisenhower wasn't the president at the time. Do you mean when he was um, U.S. commander uh, or general? Yes. I think I subconsciously added president on there, but that you're right. That was not. Okay. Just double checking. Because, yeah, it, for those for those of you that don't know, he was a general in the World War II. And then in the 50s, I think he was elected president, like 52 or something. Yeah, because I think he was president through, I think, like the late 50s or something like that. So. Mm-hmm. Um, no, yeah, that's actually a very good point. Thank you. I completely um, had a brain fart make, with that. I got to uh, make sure you're not you're not r- ruining my boy FDR. Exactly. <laughs> He's my boy. So, uh, so, so, what do you what do you think about before we get into more details? What, what do you think about this theory, Kyle? That that uh, he was Eisenhower uh, sent Glenn Miller on a on a, on a mission secret mission to fight, fight Nazis. I think that would make an amazing movie. <laughs> like Glenn Miller, he has like a bunch of like music cases, but they're filled with like machine guns and stuff instead of. Or he goes to like play a trombone for Hitler, but then it's got like. But it's it's rigged up to be a rocket launcher. Yeah. <laughs> that sounds like a like a weird Quentin Tarantino movie or something. I know it does. I don't know how plausible that is. It seems like someone as high profile and. Uh, beloved as him, they wouldn't want to send him on a risky mission, mission that could get him killed. Yeah, that, you know? that that's the part that kind of seems weird to me, is that like with all these, the, you know, this huge military across multiple nations, and they pick this one like celebrity musician. <laughs> It'd be it like just... sending late Lady Gaga to North Korea to work out a peace deal or something. <laughs> exactly, that's exactly the same thing. So, um, the, the this theory is largely driven by the fact because we said that Miller participated in a lot of counter propaganda campaigns, mm-hmm. and the fact that he spoke German on some of those led people to believe, oh, since he knows German, maybe the military used him as a spy or something. Mm. Kind of a stretch. <laughs> a bit. So in in 2014, um, Dennis Sprague, who is a senior consultant to the Glenn Miller Archive at the University of Colorado Boulder. He said, quote, there's a difference between broadcasting music or information to the enemy from England as opposed to being clandestine agents in the field running around the continent, putting yourself at risk. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, that's kind of a good point. It's like, you know, they can influence Germany from the safety of England or relative safety and, you know, arguably do as much good as they could, you know, having him parachute into berlin or something i don't know yeah so it's pretty far-fetched i I like the idea though i want someone to take that and make that into a movie or or like an animated short or something i don't know Mm -hmm. it's a it's a fun idea okay so uh the second theory is that um glenn miller's plane was so obviously it disappeared right um Mm -hmm. people people think that it was accidentally taken down by friendly fire Mm. So we said this has happened in 1944. Mm-hmm. Um, almost 40 years later, in 19, in the, or roughly 40 years later, in the 1980s, mm-hmm. new information surfaced that 138 planes had been returning from an aborted Allied bombing raid in Germany. Mm-hmm. So apparently they secretly had gone in Germany and then were like, oh, never mind, this isn't going to work. So they headed back. But while they were heading back, 
across the English Channel, apparently they disposed of all their bombs Mm -hmm. over the channel. And so there's this theory that came about in the 80s that said, oh, what if while they were coming back, dropping all these bombs, maybe one of them accidentally hit Miller's plane? That's a possibility, but like the likelihood of a bomb hitting a plane that's moving in the opposite direction. Yeah. The physics of that seem kind of improbable. Yeah, and um, I, I kind of agree with that, honestly. Um, when that information came out, though, like you have to bear in mind, at this point in time, literally the only other option that people, I mean, at least widely had come up with, was that he had fought Nazis. So they were like, well, <laughs> this, this is the much more reasonable one. Yeah, so at the time, this ended up becoming like the most widely accepted theory. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, it, it's at least a little bit more reasonable. Yeah, yeah. In 2014, uh, a Colorado Public Radio uh, article that I was reading uh, said, quote, Citing U.S. Army Air Force records, um, Dennis Bragg says the timing of when the planes were over the channel rules out that theory. So not only, like you said, that the physics doesn't necessarily seem to make it very likely. Mm-hmm. Um, apparently the timing... Of those yeah, planes was, coming through with his don't necessarily line up. I was I was thinking the same thing. Like, if the army is orchestrating him going to Paris or wherever he's going, you would think that they would know, hey, we have a fleet of bombers coming back. Dropping a that, bunch of bombs exactly where you're yeah, going. Yeah, <laughs> that they wouldn't want those p- flight paths to cross. I don't think the army back then was that incompetent, that they would be like, yeah, sure, fly fly like undetected over the English Channel. And now, I mean, I could almost see it be more likely that the, his plane was shot down than it, you know, was, than it was dropped, yeah. bombs dropped on it. Like it could have been mistaken for an enemy aircraft and they fired at it. And, yeah, and that's a good point. And I think I, I can't remember specifically if I saw a, like a, a variation on this theory that was basically that. Um, actually, I think it might have been a variation on the Nazi Germany one. The idea with that is that he was flying to Germany and then got shot down in the process or something like that. See, um, that kind of, sort of, it's like maybe, yeah. Yeah, which seems a little bit more likely than like accidentally having a bomb dropped on you. Yeah. Again, I don't I don't 100% remember the timetable of World War II. Yeah. I don't know if Germany was still occupying paris in december 1944 or if it was already liberated i would assume i would assume it was liberated would have been that. liberated by the americans they wouldn't send him literally into occupied territory when was paris liberated from germany uh august 20 oh so actually it was only four months earlier that they liberated paris oh interesting wow. so it, i guess it, it had recently been cleared out of them damn nazis mm-hmm. Fun fact uh, that's kind of tied to this. Hmm. The general that Hitler put in charge of the occupation of Paris when um, the Nazis were retreating, basically Hitler gave them the the order to basically destroy as much shit as they could. Uh, Cultural shit, uh, statues, paintings. Basically just try to wreck as much of French culture as they could. And one of the things he ordered him to do was to blow up the Eiffel Tower. And because the, I guess the general that had been occupying Paris had fallen in love with the city uh, uh, so much, he basically was just like, nope, fuck that. Uh, hmm. And I don't know if he was basically court-martialed and possibly executed for it, but yeah, he basically huh. single-handedly 
saved the Eiffel Tower from being destroyed. Oh, wow. I think it says here his name was uh, Hugo Hermann von Schultzitz. So, fun fact. So, if if if, uh, if Miller had made it to Paris, he very well may have, may have flown by the smoldering remains of the Eiffel Tower. <laughs> that would be sad. Yeah. So, uh, the third theory that we have in this list is that Miller's plane actually did arrive in Paris, but then he went to a brothel and died of a heart attack. <laughs> <laughs> so, I, like I said, that the previous theory about the planes came about in the 80s. Mm-hmm. This theory came about in the late 90s, and it appears to have been circulated by the German tabloid magazine uh, Bild, B-I-L-D. Mm. Probably pronounced differently from that, but... So I, I found an article from the, from 1997 from the South Florida Sun Sentinel that reported, quote, The secret of how he died was discovered by German journalist Udo Olfkott in U.S. Secret Service files while researching a book on Germany's BND intelligence agency. Bild quoted Olfkott as saying the secret was a typical example of wartime misinformation and the true cause of Miller's death was concealed to keep his legend alive and protect the morale of U.S. troops. Huh. Essentially, the this this tabloid said, "Hey, he died of a heart attack in in a, a brothel." But oh, you don't know about this because they were protecting his name. Yeah, they didn't want such a famous person to have died in such a risque way. <laughs> right. He said he was like what thirty eight, thirty like maybe forties at the time. Well. Um, it says in 42, he was 38, so he would have been 40. He would have been about 40, yeah. Uh, I mean, do you die of a heart attack at 40 because you see a naked woman? That's kind of sad. It can happen, but I, I, I don't... I never read anything that suggested that he had a health problem. I mean, not like that means he didn't, but it it seems kind of out of nowhere that that would all play out. Mm-hmm. And the the fact that the only... The only evidence we have of this is basically the word of someone who reported it to a tabloid magazine. <laughs> I mean, believe what you will, but I, I personally don't buy this one. Yeah, it seems kind of fishy. The fourth theory is that um, Glenn Miller's plane was taken down by icy weather conditions. Now, as we said, this was the English Channel, and it was in the middle of December. I imagine it gets pretty cold out there. So that same Colorado Public Radio article that I referenced earlier also said about this one, uh, quote, Long overlooked military documents indicate the small plane probably crashed in the English Channel after fuel intakes froze. Dennis Bragg says the icing took three forms, engine icing, carburetor icing, and induction ice. That's the kind of ice that forms on the fuel tanks and fuel lines feeding fuel to the engine. He says the plane was flying low because of poor visibility. When fuel lines froze, the engine stopped, giving the plane's pilot about eight seconds to react before it plunged into the water. Because the plane was constructed of mostly lightweight materials, it probably disintegrated on impact, killing those on board instantly. Well, that's sad. Yeah, so this guy, I, I've mentioned his name a couple of times now, Dennis Bragg. He basically, dis- around 2014 or so, he decided that like, it's been like all these decades and we still don't know what happened, and he... Mm-hmm basically reported like it was actually really easy to figure out what happened um Mm. like just no one had ever taken the time to actually like go try to dig up the documents basically Mm -hmm. so from what he from what he has reported 
this is seems pretty clearly to be what happened. Mm-hmm. Um, and by far, it seems the most plausible of the ones we've discussed. Yeah, yeah. A plane crashing in poor weather conditions that's filled with a bunch of famous people is kind of like the MO of yeah. these things. No kidding. So in a different interview with University of Colorado, he said, quote, The guy flew right into freezing conditions. This was a non-survivable accident with immediate trauma. Even if the crash didn't kill them, they would have survived just 20 minutes in the water because of the temperature. Mm -hmm. The same article says that this conclusion was reached by investigators just days after the plane went down. But the document, like I said, this was a whole military investigation, so they weren't just going to go publish it in the newspaper. Mm -hmm. Um, So the documents were boxed up, and uh, after the war, they were sent to the U.S. and locked away. So it's it's kind of fascinating that, you know, like I said, it's been roughly 70 years since this happened. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we, we've never officially received an answer about, like, what happened to him. But then they basically knew what happened to him, like, within a couple of days. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm surprised no one would have just taken the time and used the Freedom of Information Act to uncover those documents. I, I want to say... Unless there's like super sensitive military information in there, so, uh, yeah, you know, documents like that would have basically like a lifespan before they could be, you know, publicly cleared. Exactly. Especially, I mean, I'm sure even in the '60s, '70s, you know, people knew who Glenn Miller was. Right. I'm sure there was still people, you know, who listened to his music when he was alive. Well, uh, even as we've seen, even into the '80s and '90s, people were still coming up with theories about what happened. Yeah, very true. Yeah, it's just it's just odd that that was never like officially cleared up in any sort of like provable manner. Right. I mean, yeah, I don't think, you know, the Pentagon's going to come out and be like, "Here's how he died, guys." Yeah. But the fact that like it took some professor from the University of Colorado to kind of just be like, "Okay, I'm going to take it upon myself to figure this out." Yeah, and he said it wasn't that hard either. <laughs> Uh, I don't know. Yeah, it's uh, it's interesting. So, I mean, that's really the closest thing we have to an official answer to the question of what happened to him. Mm-hmm. And it's to me, I buy that certainly. I mean, it's yeah. it's logical, and it, I mean, it, it seems to come right from the source. So, mm-hmm. uh, although I suppose the <laughs> the the brothel thing was supposedly <laughs> from the same thing. So, who knows? Yeah. True. You know, small, crappy planes flying around famous people and then going into bad weather conditions. I don't know why that seems to happen so often, but it does. You could say, like, oh, wouldn't they have known that the weather was shitty and they would, you know, maybe not go till the next day or something? Um, Yeah. But it's possible that it's just one of those cases where they couldn't really... I mean, again, it was 1944. It's not like they had GPS, so... um, Yeah, true. They maybe just, just didn't know what the conditions were like until they were out there. Uh, yeah, that's a good point. Is yeah, technology back then was a bit more rudimentary than it is now. So mm-hmm. you know, they may have known, hey, it's cold, but you know, they didn't have like live weather tracking back then either. Well, and I guess an interesting point to make too is that like I, in the past, I've watched a number of like investigative documentaries about like various planes that vanished over mm-hmm. the or crashed or whatever and in, in the cases where they vanished even you know in cases where it happened in like the 90s or the early 2000s like there's still cases where they either have never found those planes or it took them like forever to find them 
even in the age where like we have GPS and all these instruments that, you know, that keep track of everything, mm-hmm. even with that, sometimes it's almost impossible to figure out what happened. Well, look, they, they never found that flight that crashed from Indo Indonesia. It's like M MH270 yeah. or something. I don't remember. Yeah. That's kind of one that I had in the back of my head. So like that can still happen even with like our modern technology today, True. you know, 80 years later. <laughs> so True. it's not surprising that a, a tiny ass plane in the 1940s could just go missing and never turn up anywhere. So yeah, um, that's kind of sad. I mean, it, it, I'm, I'm happy that they, it seems like they kind of sort of figured it out. I'm, I mean, I guess another question, like, did he have any surviving family members, a wife or kids? Um, I think I, uh, he had a wife and maybe two kids or something like that. I can't remember. I'm kind of surprised that, like, they wouldn't want the closure of knowing what happened, you know? I'm kind of speaking from memory here, but I believe one of his sons spent a good portion of his life, like, trying to figure it out. Mm. But don't necessarily quote me on that. I'm pretty sure he did, though. Pretty interesting. Like we said, like, neither of us knew that this was a thing. Um, And I, I think just the number of different theories that appeared over the years and, like, how different they were. Um, yeah, makes yeah. it kind of interesting too. Yeah, from the fact that he was a secret spy trying to, you know, infiltrate Germany, to he died while having sex at a brothel. Can you imagine if like somehow that ended up being like what actually happened to him? <laughs> yeah, that would be kind of interesting. Meanwhile, we probably have some hundred-year-old Nazis laughing, listening to this podcast, saying, "Ha ha, I shot him." Because he was a spy. <laughs> yeah, living in Argentina or whatever. Yeah. Exactly. Or he's living in Argentina. He secretly uh, escaped there. <laughs> I guess you guys can tell us what one you think it is, or if you have your own theory. Spread your fake news on our Facebook page. Please don't. <laughs> Facebook.com slash getyourfunk. Or if you want to look up some other episodes you've done in the past, you can go to getyourfunk.com. And we have all of our episodes there. Also, uh, you can find us on Spotify. Yay. We are also on Google Play, Apple Shits. <laughs> thanks for listening, everybody. And thanks for joining, Kyle. You're welcome. <laughs> uh, we have been Funk Radio. You have been the listeners. And now that there's nothing left to listen to, I guess you will cease to be the listeners until next time. Yes. You cease to exist until you listen to us again. So yeah, this has been your host, Kyle. Bye. We love you. And this has been your host, Peter. Also, bye. <laughs>